oh hell no like this is actually my like real life biggest fear yeah. i am first of all like already kind of terrified of water because i'm not a very strong swimmer and there's just, like a lot of scary shit in the water but also i have learned i used to think i was claustrophobic but i've learned that it's actually a restriction of movement that oh, i can't handle okay so like literally like all you the only thing you would have to do is also put like some sort of needle going into my eyeball and like those are like my three like the three worst things that could happen to me <laughs> great i mean i would argue that needle into the eyeball is probably a worst case scenario for most people <laughs> i'm Paige, and i'm megan and this is Spooky Science Sisters. Hello, you're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. In this spooky true crime episode, we are going to do a deep dive into some of the crazy events that have taken place at Lake Crescent in Olympic National Park. But first, something spooky. <laughs> I got to do something to jazz it up, you know? <laughs> I love that that's become a thing. <laughs> so, okay. Megan, what spooky stuff happened to you? So, I don't have anything super spooky to talk about, but I decided today that my something spooky is that I was reading up on body decomposition or the lack thereof in Lake Crescent, which is our topic today, <laughs> during my lunch break. Uh, and it totally put me off my appetite. So that's spooky for me because I love to eat lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I can say that I don't know that I've ever watched anything or read or heard anything mm -hmm. where I was eating and just like had to stop, like just couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah. Well, I don't know what that says about me because I watch I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, normally it doesn't doesn't bother me, but today when we get to the part that like really got me, I will I will let you guys know. But yeah, there was just there was just something about it where I was like, Ugh, I don't know about this. <laughs> uh okay, so what is your something spooky? Um, I also don't have anything spooky really, but it is supposed to be negative 30 with wind chill tomorrow. So like that's pretty shitty. <laughs> Maybe not spooky, but like it freaking sucks. <laughs> it's scary for my face when I'm walking the dog right. tomorrow morning. <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. Also spooky for me because, reminder, we live in the same city now. Yay! <laughs> we did it! We did it! <laughs> we're going to celebrate this accomplishment for a while. Okay. So we're talking about Lake Crescent. And to preface this, I did a TikTok series in September and October covering spooky stories from primarily national parks. I did a few city and state parks as well. But one of the parks that I covered is Olympic National Park in Washington. And in my first video on the park, I did two. I talked about the Bigfoot stories from this region, which were fun. 
But then I found out about and did a video on Lake Crescent and absolutely knew that we had to do a spooky true crime episode focused on it because it's bananas. (laughs) It really is. It's like sort of crazy to me that with all with all of the true crime stuff that I've read, listened to, heard, watched, Mm -hmm. like I didn't know about this really. I mean, I don't know that I had heard any of these stories. Neither had I. And they're really good ones. And we will talk about the three main ones today. But yeah, there's just sort of this, like I got the impression from a lot of comments on the TikTok videos that I did that, that, yeah, there's just sort of this like general spooky vibe (laughs) about the lake. (laughs) Um, And it makes people feel rather uneasy. And I think, you know, there have been other people who have gone missing or drowned or, you know, a lot of accidents that have happened. And that's not to say that there's actually anything supernatural or paranormal going on here. It's just, it happens to be a very big and deep lake that is very cold and that sort of makes it inherently dangerous. Have you been there? Like, have you been to Olympic National Park? I have been. Yes, I've been to Olympic National Park. I don't remember if we were specifically on Lake Crescent okay. when I was there. Because I was only there, like, we only did like a day there. But I mean, it is, it's so beautiful. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I looked, I've never been, but I looked at photos of Lake Crescent and uh-huh. I mean, it's beautiful, but a lot of the photos do, like even the photos give like a kind of spooky vibe. And part of it I'm sure is that, you know, there's like now there are articles about like the spooky stuff that's happened. And so they're picking foggy, spooky photos. But like a lot of the photos right. I saw definitely gave that kind of creepy vibe. And I mean, some of that's just like, it's the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> it's like well, fair. <laughs> parts of Olympic National Park are considered a rainforest and stuff. So it's just sort of a foggy, misty place <laughs> in general. But yes, it definitely has a reputation. Olympic National Park is beautiful. So this was a super fun one to learn about. And like I said, I knew that we had to do it for an episode. Okay, so we will start with some basic info on the formation of the lake and key characteristics about it. So it was carved by glaciers that covered the area around 14,000 years ago, so during the last glacial maximum. Uh, It's similar to Lake Chelan in that way, which is the deepest lake in Washington, but also carved by glaciers. Uh, The lake is at least 600 feet deep. The most recent official measurement puts it at 624 feet, Uh, but some sources said 650, so it's a little unclear (laughs) what the true measurement is. But that's sort of part of the mystique of the lake because there were reports over the years of a survey crew who was laying cable claiming that they reached a depth of 1,000 feet at one point. Uh, And of course, there are stories about the lake being bottomless and all these exaggerations about it. So it's, yeah, it's just sort of got a reputation for being this sort of creepy, mysterious (laughs) place. But even, you know, if the official measurement of 624 or 650, whatever, that's very deep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, that's a lot of water. Okay. So a couple 
I guess, interesting things about the lake. So first, there's some really interesting indigenous history about it. So the lake actually used to be part of a larger lake that encompassed the neighboring Lake Sutherland. And the native Klalem and Quileute people, and like, yes, Quileute as in Twilight Quileute. <laughs> Although I think they don't love to be associated with that. Um, I wonder why. Anymore. But they claim that long ago, members of both tribes were killed when Mount Storm King, which is a peak that overlooks both lakes, grew angry at their fighting and threw a huge boulder down at them from its summit and crushed them, killing members of both tribes. Wow. Yes. So this is cool because like, yeah, that just, you know, sounds like sort of a fantastical story. But then geologists have actually found evidence that a massive landslide occurred about 8,000 years ago. So at a time when there were indigenous people already living in the area, that created a dam and cut that pre-existing lake into two parts, forming Lake Crescent and Lake Sutherland. So it's got like a really long history about it from both indigenous people, but then, you know, also from the national park being there and, and all the people visiting. All right. So the lake is really deep. It is in a mountainous region. It's in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, it's not really known for being uh, a very warm area, but it is very cold and clear water. There is a remarkably low amount of nitrogen in the water. The lake is classified as what we call, it's classified as ultra oligotrophic, where oligotrophic means that there are very limited nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. So things that we like artificially put in fertilizers, but that are present in organic materials and soils. Uh, So there's very low amounts of these in the lake. So there's not a lot of algae growth or sort of like other little microscopic critters present because they don't have these things to eat. The lake is mainly filled by rain and snowmelt from the surrounding mountains, so it doesn't get a ton of organic-laden runoff accumulating in it. This makes the water very clear. You can see down to a depth of about 70 feet, which is pretty awesome. And the chemistry of these types of cold, low-nutrient lakes means that bodies don't decompose like they normally would in water. Uh, And we're going to talk a lot more about that in a little bit. But yeah, it always brings to mind for me the phrase from the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald song about Lake Superior that the lake never gives up its dead. Because Lake Superior, Lake Tahoe, these like very deep, clean, cold lakes are the same way where it's so cold that bodies just like don't decompose like they normally would. They don't bloat and float to the surface. So it's, it's creepy (laughs) for that reason alone. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I like frequently forget how long it takes for a body to decompose in water anyway. Like it already takes quite a bit longer does it? I would have thought it was really fast. I would have I would have too, and that's why I always forget it. So how does how quickly does it hold on? Ooh, wait, here we go. Differential decomposition in terrestrial freshwater and saltwater environments from 2010. Does submersion in water 
affect decomposition in a way that supports the long-standing generalization that a body decomposing one week on the surface of the ground is equivalent to two weeks in the water. So it is slower if you're in water versus on the surface of the ground. Isn't that weird? That is sort of weird. It feels backwards think, to me. Yeah, but I bet it all comes down to like like bugs and scavengers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that you're probably right. So yeah. Anyway, okay. That, well, <laughs> I saw that note. Some I saw a note somewhere about how long it took, and I meant to go back to it and totally forgot. But I just remember being like, "Oh, that just like takes a little a lot yeah. longer than I would think." Well, so. now we know that bodies decompose slower in in water in general. So you learn something new every day. Okay. <laughs> okay. So obviously we've gotten to bodies and decomposition and yeah, it's just generally spooky for that reason. But we are going to talk about some specific crimes and how this relates. <laughs> so the first one we're going to talk about is a woman named Hallie Illingworth and she's known uh, more often as the Lady of the Lake. Uh, and just a warning, if you hadn't caught on by now, we are going to talk about domestic violence in this story. We are going to talk about specifics, about body decomposition. So if that makes you uncomfortable, you should you should just skip this part. <laughs> Keep going until you get to the 1927 Chevy. <laughs> So Hallie Illingworth, uh, she was born in 1901 in Kentucky. As she grew older, she moved away from Kentucky and kind of bounced around the West, uh, spending several time or sp- wow, spending time in several cities. Uh, but after several moves and after ending two marriages, she landed in Washington in 1936. And there she worked as a barmaid at the bar within the Singers Lake Crescent Tavern, which I guess was actually a whole resort. And the bar is now part of the Lake Crescent Lodge, which is super cool. Yeah, I know. I was like, I want to go stay there. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Vacation, vacation. (laughs) (laughs) So in Washington and actually there at that Crescent Turban, Turban, (laughs) Turban. She meets Montgomery or Monty Illingworth, and uh, he was a beer delivery truck driver. And just shortly after meeting, really, um, that summer of 1936, the two of them get married. Unfortunately, as we've alluded to, Hallie and Monty's marriage goes south pretty quickly. And they get married in 1936, and by the end of 1937, there are already reports of her showing up to work with black eyes, bruises. Um, There's a story where she tells a coworker of hers that he broke her teeth one night. Um, and at some point the police are even called to break up some of their fights. So on December 22nd, 1937, Hallie disappears and Monty just tells everybody she ran off with another man from Alaska. And while nobody confirms this story, Monty is still granted a divorce the following year. And then he leaves Washington to follow another woman to California who conveniently, according to some sources, was Hallie's sister's roommate. Because that isn't, like, super sketchy and weird. (laughs) Right. Like, hmm. 
<laughs> where was Hallie's sister in all this, if that is true? Um, and I do think, like, yeah, it's so suspicious. Like, oh, she disappeared. Like, shoot, guess we'll have to get a divorce now. But I also don't think that it was atypical for the time for people to just take the man at his word. And I'm sure, like, the, the whole no body, no crime concept comes into play here. Oh, sure. Yeah. I yeah. just, like... Yeah, like, where is Hallie's sister? She's just like, oh, yeah, my sister is gone. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah, like, they don't – I didn't see anything mentioned, like, her family launching some big search for her or really – I mean, I'm sure they did, and it just, you know, the headline gets buried under all the drama of, like, finding her body and everything that happened afterwards. Right. But, yeah, it's it's just – it's weird that everyone was just like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. sure, she went to Alaska. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So now we get to the finding of her body. And again, this is the part that is going to get gross and is like for sure the part that put me off my lunch today. So <laughs> we've been warned. So I shouldn't so, be snacking on my peanut M&Ms right now. No. <laughs> Although I was eating something soft, like I think crunchy is okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Ooh, I can't even think about it. Okay. I don't know why it bothered me so much. Okay. So Hallie's body ends up being found by two fishermen almost three years after she went missing. And they find her on July 6th of 1940. And she's found floating in the lake. One source said that it was the first body to ever be found floating in the the lake. But that sounds very dramatic. And like, it was 1940. So, you know, that whatever. I don't I don't know if that's true. But her body had been wrapped in a blanket and tied with rope. And it was evident that the restraints had decayed away enough to release her from whatever was used to weigh her down when her body was dumped in the lake. So that's why she was able to float up to the surface. And I mentioned before that because the lake is low in nutrients and very cold, weird things happen to bodies in it. And this was very evident with Hallie's body. So when they unwrapped her, they noted that she was almost perfectly preserved. So some people even described her as like being more of like a statue than a human body, Uh, except for she was missing the tips of her extremities. So her tips of her fingers and toes And her face was also nearly featureless. So, like, she didn't really have a face anymore, which is so fucking terrifying. So, yeah, so she couldn't be identified right away because of those things. And I was like, this is literally haunting a fly manor. Like, what the fuck? Right. Well, and so I read read this note and actually, like, went and looked up to see if fly manor was at all, like... credited this story i guess at all um Mm -hmm. and i mean they didn't but it is like exactly the same thing (laughs) yeah i was just googling mike flanagan because i was like i wonder if he's from that area or something like that he would have heard this before yeah but yeah no he was born in massachusetts his dad was in the coast guard so they moved around a lot so i don't know maybe maybe he heard the story at some point and, and it, it just stuck with stuck, him yeah. but it's just like it's so uncanny like some of the details of this mm-hmm. okay rather than decomposing in the water like a normal body would 
her skin was intact and, or for the most part, intact and had an appearance like that of ivory soap or wax. So what happened is the fatty portions of her body had been converted to a subst- a, to a substance called adipocere via a process called saponification, which just means that they were turned into soap. So what happened here is the cold kept her from decomposing and the natural salts and minerals dissolved in the lake water slowly converted her fatty tissue into this soap-like substance. Okay. So (laughs) horrifying and like such a terrible story. So not at all to make light of it, but like, it is, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, the the chemistry of it is really awesome. Is cool. And I mean, ultimately, because she was so well preserved, they were able to tell that she had been murdered. So I'm sure it contributed some to her for them being able to move forward with the case. And that's sort of like what I was wondering is if she Mm -hmm. had been in any other, you know, or other bodies of water at three years, would Mm -hmm. they have been able to identify her? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, she might've been so, so decomposed that they, even if they could identify her, you know, they might not have been able to tell how she had died at yeah. that point. And so if you can't, you know, if you can't figure that out, then maybe you can't, you know, figure out who did it or if somebody killed her, if it was just an accident, whatever. So like I said, couldn't identify her right away because she doesn't have a face and she doesn't have the tips of her fingers. But it was very clear because her skin was so well preserved that she had been severely beaten and strangled to death. And obviously she was like hogtied and someone had weighted her down uh, before the restraints broke. She did have a very distinctive upper dental plate, which I assume just means like her top bite mark, but I don't know. But investigators took note of this and took pictures of it and sent it around to about 5,000 dentists in like the area and surrounding states. And it ultimately was identified as Hallie's by a dentist in South Dakota. So I assume she spent some time in South Dakota or this dentist moved to South Dakota. I'm not sure, but they must've treated her and taken x-ray images in the past and like noted that she had this very distinctive uh, dental plate. At this point, they know she's been murdered. They know who she is. They know she's gone hus- she's gone missing and her husband has like <laughs> fucked off to California being like, oh, I don't know where she is. So Monty gets charged with Hallie's murder and arrested and extradited to Washington for his trial. And of course, he's claiming that he was innocent and he denies that the corpse was even Hallie's. But the dental records obviously are very difficult to disprove. Uh, But really the sort of nail in his proverbial coffin was that they were able to match fibers from the rope she was tied with to one that Monty had borrowed several years earlier from either a storekeeper or I saw a couple sources say, say the resort owner at the Lake Crescent Tavern. That's insane. Yeah. (laughs) That is insane. Yeah. So it's like, it's just crazy that they they were able to, 
match those and figure out that they were the same. So they do this. They've got the dental records. It's obviously very suspicious in the first place. Like you said, he was found guilty. I think I read that it only took the jury like four hours to come back with a verdict. So it was very quick. Mm -hmm. And he got convicted for life. But as these things go, uh, he only ended up serving nine years of his sentence of before course. he got paroled of and he was did. able to move back to California. So <laughs> fuck that guy. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Hallie's body, I mean, it's like you said, like, it's very sad. Like, you feel for her. She's in this bad marriage and, and she gets murdered and everything. But, like, it is sort of a very cool, like, oh, we use this this pretty neat science to like solve this murder and end up, you know, arresting and convicting Monty for it. But the stories don't end there. So a lot of people claim that Hallie is still around. And it was before she was identified that news stories started calling her the Lady of the Lake. But that has stuck. Many people think that she haunts the Lake Crescent Lodge, causing mischief, like she bangs on doors in the middle of the night and flickers lights on and off. Uh, Some people have even claimed to see her glowing figure floating across the surface of the water. And I had a couple people who worked at the lodge or had worked there who commented on TikTok saying that it was like, it was well known (laughs) that, you know, Hallie was supposed to be around the lodge, but they sort of made it sound like she was you know, the the consensus was that she was sort of this like benevolent spirit hanging out. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here, Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. So the second story we're going to talk about, which like... It's slightly less gruesome. It's it's less gruesome, but like also I think that (laughs) the next two stories are significantly less scientific as well. So... Just join us for this yeah. chat about true crime. Yeah. Um, this one's got DNA testing at the end. That's, that's fair. a spoiler that's alert. Fair. But, you know, anyway, yeah. go ahead. But you don't know what the results are. Yeah. So nothing's spoiled. We are going to talk about Russell and Blanche Warren. So Blanche, 33 years old, had been at the Port Angeles Hospital and on July 3rd, she was discharged. So in 1929, by the way, do we talk about that yet? I was about to, okay. but that's fine. <laughs> um, so Russell goes and picks her up after she's been discharged and the two of them head back to their home by, I already forgot how to pronounce this, by the Bogachiel River. Yeah. And they're going home to their sons to celebrate 4th of July. Yeah. Like, yay, mom's out of the hospital. Yeah, let's going home to celebrate the holiday. Hang out. Um, unfortunately, though, the two of them never make it home. Mm. So two weeks later, um, the couple's announced missing. And I think there's like some, you know, there's got to be some amount of searching going on mm-hmm. in those two weeks. But um, I just didn't find a ton of information about it. But after they're announced missing, 
it sparks a two-month police investigation. And that police investigation, unfortunately, doesn't really find much. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of theories surrounding what's happened and and why they've disappeared. Many speculate that the couple missed a turn or like a curve in the road, uh, which would have sent their car into Lake Crescent, resulting in the Warrens drowning. Yes. And during that search, I just wanted to note that they did do a search of the water in the area where they suspected that the car may have gone off the road. But with the diving technology of the time, they couldn't go very deep. I think it was like they couldn't even go deeper than about 70 feet. Uh, Yeah. And this is like, you know, in a lake that gets very deep, very fast. So it's, you know, they didn't find the warrants. They didn't find the car or anything. So, Unfortunately, their sons and the rest of their family didn't get any closure. And this is such a sad story because they left their two sons, Frank and Charles, behind who were either it's it's like they're either 11 and 13 or 12 and 14 at the time, but fairly young. And a lot of people were saying that the Warrens had just abandoned their sons, you know, just, you know, yeah, cut and run because they didn't want to take care of them anymore. And so that was really hard on the on the boys. Um, I guess they were teased and like didn't have any way to disprove the rumors that their parents had abandoned them. So yeah, it's rough times. Yeah, I had read, um, and I don't know at what ages, but I believe it was Charles. One of them, I don't remember which, um, one of them died from a drowning accident. Seriously? Um, weirdly enough, yeah. That is weird. And then the other one um, didn't, I don't think he lived to be very old because he had succumbed to um, alcohol addiction. So Yikes. very sad story. Yeah. Uh, like well, you I said, I, had, I definitely heard the, the problems with alcohol, al- <laughs> the problems with alcohol. And yeah, I mean, I think the one story I read sort of said that a lot of it stemmed from, they just had so many I'm problems sure. <laughs> after yeah, this happened. I mean, so yeah, ugh, it's such a bummer. So anyway. So yeah, very sad. Fortunately, you know, unfortunately, it's it's a little too late, I think, for the family. But fortunately, at some point, 72 years later, Bob Casso or Queso, who is a former diver, he renews the search with Dan Pontbriand. Pontbriand, that sounds right. Pontbriand, who's an Olympic National Park Ranger. The two of them get together and renew the search. And Bob has done decades of his own research into the case prior to even trying to get Dan on Mm -hmm. board. Uh, So the two of them, like I said, are back on the case. And after an 11-month search, a team of divers finally find the Warren's Chevy at the bottom of Lake Crescent. Yeah. So this is this like over 70-year-old cold missing person's case. Missing person's case there we go the car was found around in about 170 feet of water near a location called ambulance point which is called that because an ambulance once slid off the road there when it was icy and two emts in it escaped but the patient who was strapped to the gurney drowned which is a fucking nightmare all on its own. 
Yeah. I wrote, oh, hell no. Like this is actually my like real life biggest fear. I am first of all, like already kind of terrified of water because I'm not a very strong swimmer and there's like a lot of scary shit in the water. But also I have learned, I used to think I was claustrophobic, but I've learned that it's actually a restriction of movement that I can't handle. Okay, So like literally like all you the only thing you would have to do is also put like some sort of needle going into my eyeball and like those are like my three like the three worst things that could happen to me <laughs> great i mean i would argue that needle into the eyeball is probably a worst case scenario for most people <laughs> but yeah i mean it's just like the this is the thing about lake crescent it's just like there are all these stories that are just I mean, they're they're tragic and like just some of the strangest stories. Like, and and yeah, like apparently the patient too. Like, I think they just had like a broken leg or a broken arm or something like that. Oh, like a survivable no. injury, and it's like cool. So you're in the ambulance, you're on the way to the hospital, and then it's like you fucking drown. The worst. <laughs> anyway, uh, I will say that like. Yes, there are uh, there are some like weird stories coming mm-hmm. from this like, but like I would imagine that a lot of bodies of water have similar stories. I mean, like I'm yes. sure that not every water's like, oh, the patient on a gurney drowned, but like I'm sure every body of water has like a list of weird stories yes. that happen there. So, yes. like you said earlier, like probably like nothing paranormal is going on here. Yeah, it's just like these are. These ones are like a little Yeah, they've had like maybe. some higher profile yeah. things happen and then people really pay attention to it at that lake. So it makes it seem like more is happening. But like, yeah, realistically, I know like there have been tons of shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, like Lake Superior has yeah. a ton of spooky stories. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff about various large bodies of water and large lakes and crater lake has its own set of spooky stories about the lake and stuff so yes i know that it's probably overblown but it is it's like it's easy to sort of get carried away (laughs) swept up into it because like there are just some really creepy stories about it yeah okay well and it's uh (laughs) it's like we talked about i think this is last episode that we recorded i said like oh basically like all large bodies of water probably have yeah dead bodies <laughs> in them so like at some point we've decided like there's there's a certain there's number a dead of bodies body that we're okay to with. water <laughs> ratio that people are okay with is it is you think it's the number of body like do you think it's a ratio or do you just think there's just like a number of bodies <laughs> <laughs> Like it doesn't matter what body body of water I'm in. If there's a hundred bodies or less, I'm fine. Okay, but if you're in like a swimming pool and there's a hundred, I'm just being a jackass. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, (laughs) back to the warrants. Okay, so yeah, like Paige said, like it's you know a little too late for their sons, but they do have surviving family members. And in 2004, skeletal remains were found not too far from where their car was located. And they were later able to be tested for DNA. And it was confirmed by comparing 
the DNA to one of their surviving relatives that it belonged to Russell Warren. So the good news is, yes, this took a long time, but we do get some closure about what happened to them. And it sort of sounded like, you know, even in these surviving family members, like it's a family story that's gotten passed down for a long time. So I'm sure they still got some sense of relief you know, knowing what actually happened. I think the only thing that stuck out to me about this was like, oh, like, I mean, he's, you know, been in there for over 70 years. I think he is down to just skeleton because this is in shallower water. So we're like in like 150 feet of water versus it must have been that Hallie was like much deeper down or dumped in a deeper part of the lake. Because I think Mm -hmm. like with Hallie's body and the saponification like if they if the body stays deep enough like i think it just like it just stays that way like indefinitely so yeah yeah we're on to our last major thing about lake crescent our last major spooky true crime <laughs> yes so um now we're going to talk about israel keys and had you heard about israel keys before this no i didn't hear about i hadn't heard of any of these right these, this is all new Okay, to me. so this was new as well. I had not heard about him either. And then, like, since I did the TikTok and, like, included a little blurb about him, I've gone on to listen to, like, a couple podcast episodes about him. And there's, like, a, a serialized one that I'm planning to listen to. But, yeah. Like, he – in terms of serial killers, I'm, like, A, surprised that neither of us had heard of him. And, like, B, he's one of the more terrifying ones to me. Definitely. He's a, definitely. He's a real shitbag. Um, Su- yes. <laughs> Super shitbag. Israel is a former U.S. soldier um, who lived in the Nia Bay area from 2001 until about 2007. And in 2007, he moves to Anchorage, Alaska, where he opens a construction company. And is Nia Bay also in Alaska? No, that's in Washington. It's oh. about, I think it's like a hundred miles away from Lake Crescent. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's living in that general area. And so on March 13th of 2012, Israel is arrested for the kidnapping and murder of a 17-year-old barista. And her her age sort of um, changes depending on the source you're looking at. Some I saw said 16, some said 18, but she's somewhere in that range. And her name is Samantha Koenig. And she uh, is like literally kidnapped from the coffee cart that she is working at. Now, it's important to note that a lot of the information regarding how many crimes Israel has committed, um, in what years, and in which order, it's all a little bit confusing. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, uh, as Megan stated, he's a shitbag, (laughs) and he (laughs) isn't very super, he isn't very forthcoming with any of the names of his victims, and he, like, seems to enjoy messing with the police. Yeah. So it makes it kind of hard and it makes the reporting of his crimes like sort of messy. Yeah. I sort of got the sense that there's like, yeah, he's got some sort of like narcissistic personality disorder yeah, that's thing my going on. Well. But like he had like he had like a wife and a kid and stuff like that. So it's just he's just living this like insane double life. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, fine. So mostly that it's just important to keep that in mind. All the information I have on Israel is just my attempt to piece together everything that I had gotten from several sources. A lot of them are conflicting. So just like I said, keep in mind that it isn't clear what things he was being honest about. And therefore the information we have may not perfectly match other tellings of his crimes. So 
According to some of the information that was compiled on Wikipedia, um, he they state he left Samantha's body in a shed and went to New Orleans, where he departed on a pre-booked two-week cruise with his family oh in the Gulf God. of Mexico. When he returns to Alaska... He removes Koenig's body from the shed, applies makeup to her, corp- to her face, sews her eyes open with fishing line, and snaps a picture of a four-day-old issue of the Anchorage Daily News alongside her body, oh God. posed to appear that she was still alive. He then demands $30,000 in ransom, and then um, he dismembers her body and disposes of it in... Matanuska Lake, north of Anchorage. And while this is a tragic story, unfortunately, it's not the only story like this. So during the the FBI's investigation, um, they come to find out that Israel is involved in several other killings. Now, he admits to, and this number, like I said, changes depending on what source you read, mm-hmm. but somewhere around uh, another seven murders, but the FBI um, thinks it's possible that he could have been involved in up to 11 other killings. Mm -hmm. So according to their timeline, Keyes commits his first crime while he is living in Nia Bay. So while he is in Washington Mm -hmm. State, they think is when he commits his first homicide. And he apparently says to the FBI while they're questioning him that he committed his first murder because his town was boring. Because apparently murder is the answer to solving your boredom fucking asshole and i think what also makes him particularly terrifying is that he was committing these murders all over the country so like samantha koenig is like in in anchorage where he was but like he used to apparently fly to different places and like bury or hide these basically like murder caches And then come back later and just, like, pick a random victim and take them to where the cash was and murder them, which is just insane. Like, there just wasn't any pattern to who he chose. (laughs) Yeah, it was, like, totally random victims. And then in one of the um, interviews I had read, they were talking about, like, what weapons he would use. Mm -hmm. And, like, even that, I mean, he didn't have one in particular, though apparently at some point did state that, like, using a gun was his last resort Mm. whatever that means but he just yeah super random like all over the place and he then tells fbi agents that he supposedly disposes of this body that he murders in the nia bay era area and he disposes of it by dumping it into Lake Crescent and weighing it down with four to five milk jugs. And like in these interviews, he apparently states at one point that he disposed of the bodies. So mm. unclear if there's just one or if there's several or if this even happened at all. So yeah, that's how we, that's how we get back to Lake Crescent. <laughs> With his real keys is that he claims that he was dumping bodies there. Um, And he ended up taking his own life while he was imprisoned. So I don't think he ever even got brought to trial or anything. So Yeah, I think it was like very pretty shortly after those interviews that he did. Yeah. So uh, it's a a bummer all around. But yeah, just like another weird, creepy thing connected to Lake Crescent. But like we said, you know, 
there i'm sure there are other bodies being dumped in other large lakes as well it's just that people pay particular attention when it is lake crescent (laughs) okay so final thoughts before we wrap up so it is thought and i think this is legit that there is an underground stream that flows from lake crescent to lake sutherland and if you'll remember they were cut off from one another by this large landslide that occurred about 8,000 years ago, but that they're still Mm -hmm. connected by some sort of like underground conduit. And Dr. Charles P. Larson, who is a pathologist from Tacoma, who worked on Halley's body in the 1940s, estimated that you would probably find 50 to 100 bodies in that channel all turned to soap. (laughs) So... Great. <laughs> Yikes. Um, but if if you want to hear more about this uh, or you are interested in more spooky or true crime stories about national parks, A, you can follow me on TikTok because I have like 20 videos on there than I did uh, in September and October. And I will be doing more this September and October. But there's also this great podcast called National Parks After Dark. And their whole thing is they like tell spooky stories and true crime stories that happen in national parks. And they're really great. So I highly recommend that you check that out. Okay. Well, that wraps up our spooky true crime episode on Lake Crescent. It's such a joyful episode this was. <laughs> we had like two... <laughs> Two, two episodes for the beginning of the year that have ended on just like severe bummers. Yeah, right. <laughs> These have been um, probably like our least giggly episodes because we're yeah. just like totally horrified the whole time. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, when, when you tune into episode 42 uh, on the Winchester Mansion or the Winchester Mystery House, uh, it will be a little less dark and sad <laughs> it might not be <laughs> it but it, it honestly probably won't be uh, um, <laughs> it's that time of year you guys we all need more vitamin d to be giggly <laughs> um if you liked this episode hit subscribe and share with a friend you can find us on tiktok at spooky science twitter and instagram at spooky SciPod, facebook at spooky science sisters and at our website spooky science If you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at SpookySciencesisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane (coughs) and come home under the plane... You've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away 
can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.